last few Sundays, the sermons have been very confrontative because that's what the scripture said. Um, I got tickled with Butch Cronin last week. He's, I, I love Butch. <clears throat> After last Sunday's sermon, he came up to me last Sunday evening and said, I want you to know I've been soaking my toes all afternoon. He said, ain't more coming to hear you preach like going to a mugging. <laughs> he said, but I love it. Been very confrontative. This scripture, though, switches. It switches to example, from confrontation to example. To see in the life of Christ what we need to do when we are intimidated, when we are confronted by those who would harm us. Jesus, there are some Pharisees that come up to Jesus, and, and it's tough to tell their goals. Um, but there were probably some Pharisees who really admired Jesus' teaching and did not want him to be harmed. So they come up with a story about Herod. Now, this is a different Herod than when Jesus was young, but I want you to imagine the tapes that are going off in Jesus' mind. Remember when Jesus was born, how Herod came over uh, after all of the babies, uh, all of the baby boys under two years old, and all of them were killed, and Joseph and Mary had to take Jesus down into Egypt until Herod had died, until it was safe again. Well, you can imagine the stories of his boyhood, of that, you know, that adventure, um, why they were down there in the first place, that Herod was out to get him. And so you can imagine the, the image in his mind that, that here he was this defenseless baby and someone was after him. Now he's just about to go into Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And here the Pharisees come with a story about Herod again. So you can, you can just put yourself in his place and see how intimidating that would be. Whether or not you know you're going to have to die, just that name itself would be tremendously intimidating. But he doesn't get intimidated. Look what he says. He says, go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I reached my goal. Now, before I go on, I want to just tell you a little bit technically about that scripture. For him, casting out demons, is there, are you getting an echo out of this? Or is this just me? Maybe it's just my empty head. Um, casting out demons and healing sicknesses is not unusual. The supernatural has become the natural. The supernatural has become the daily. And so what he is saying is, I'm going to go on doing what I've always done. It's business as usual with me. And the third day I reached my goal. Now, it doesn't mean on the third day, the third day, you've got to know a little bit about biblical numerology. There are certain numbers that are perfect numbers that symbolize more than just the, the increments that they usually symbolize. It's going to take him more than, than a couple of days to get to Jerusalem. But third is, the three is one of a perfect or complete number. And what he is saying is that on the third day I reach my goal or I am perfected, is he is saying that in God's timing there will come a day, in his perfect timing, when I will become completed. Now that doesn't mean that the struggle is over. That does not mean that that's the end of the story. But that is a, and a tremendous event in the life. That is, a, that is a, uh, a milestone in the life of Christ. And he's talking, of course, about his crucifixion. And he's foreshadowing his resurrection. I went to a, a graduation exercise yesterday. 
And it was in that sense, you know, it was their third day, you know. They had completed a goal. They had um, been made perfect because of a long, I, I knew some of those kids, you know, some of them were church kids. I knew that they had been through some very, very difficult times, but they had never been distracted from doing what they needed to do to graduate from high school. And so, as an accumulation of all of that effort, they came to their third day, and they were completed in a sense. And that's what he's talking about here. Now, I want you to notice some things about Jesus, and I want you to learn from him. First of all, he is not intimidated. There is a general sense of his life that does not make him hesitate to kid about the one who would come after him. Some of you are facing some very difficult times. There's somebody in your background, perhaps, that you're always afraid is going to catch up to you. Or there's somebody ahead of you who you know is going to make it very difficult for you. Or there are circumstances that always look like they're going to overtake you. And I want you to have the mind of Christ. And first of all, look at those things and say to them, you're not in charge. You're not in charge. And you know what? I'm not in charge. (laughs) You don't have to be in charge over those things. Because God's in charge. God is in charge. This is so cool. I want you to... There is a sense in the life of Christ. You can see it in John uh, 10th chapter, 19th verse, where he says, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my my own accord. If you have laid your life down with Jesus Christ, there isn't one person in this world that can take your life from you. Not one. I don't care how big, I don't care how powerful, I don't care their history. They cannot take your life from you. You know why? Because God is in charge. John 10, 28, read on. And it says, no one's stronger than the Father. And what the Father has given cannot be taken from him. And Jesus knew it. So he wasn't intimidated. He knew God was in charge. It looked like one thing down here. Yeah, he was going to die. And from an earthly perspective, it looked like he was going to lose. But all he had to do was look up. You remember me telling you about an old neighborhood bully I had, uh, Red Bricker. He was a nice bully. You know, there are bullies that beat you up and are mean about it, but there are bullies like like older brothers that beat you up, but if anybody else tries to beat you up, he beats them up, see? And Red was a nice older brother type bully. And uh, I can remember one day being out in my backyard, and he lived next to me, and Red was this big guy big guy and we were building a tree house in this silver maple out in my backyard and we had had some run-ins with West End Boulevard boys that's a boys from another neighborhood you know and anytime Red was around us us other kids you know they wouldn't mess with us you know but if they saw us without Red they were after us so here we are just Red and I are out there and 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 we're building a tree house And the lower branch is so low, I can't hand things up to him. So he's lowering a rope, and I'm tying boards onto it. And he's taking it up into the tree. And I just tied a board, and he had just taken a board up into the tree. And around the alley comes the West End Boulevard boys. And they looked at me just straight on. The foliage of the the tree is so thick, they can't possibly see what's up there. And they said, so, Hunter... 
looks, uh, looks like we got you all alone, boy. And I looked around and I said, yeah, it looks like that, doesn't it? <laughs> they said, uh, doesn't look like you've got your old big baboon red brick around, does it, boy? I said, tell me what you think about red bricker. <laughs> Don't you love it? And they said, we think he's a jerk. We think he's a, you know, and this is just expletives deleted. You know, they just started cussing about him. And I can just feel him on the branch right above me just seething. Now, Red, one thing that when he got mad, his whole face got flushed. He had a skin problem. He looked like a pizza. He just got so mad. He just, and I can just see his face turning just turn around. They're so mad at them. And they're walking toward me. And they're saying all these bad things about Red Brecker. And I'm just standing there. And I said, now, now tell me what you're going to do to me. He said, we're going to kill you, boy. We're going to beat up on you. We're going to rip your arms and beat you over the head with it. We're going to do everything to you. I said, well, okay. Come ahead. And they got about five feet from me, and Red Bricker came down out of that tree, kind of like Lou Ferrigno and the Hulk. And man, they just took off. Just took off. Well, now look. Just looking from an earthly perspective, it looks like they had me, didn't it? And when you're just looking from an earthly perspective, it looks like your enemies are in control, and it looks like you're not. But all you got to do is look just a little bit above where you are. And God is in control, see? God is in control. Now, if you realize that, you will realize there is nothing in this world that should be able to intimidate you for very long or for very deep. Yeah, we can get scared every once in a while. I mean, that's a human thing. That's a human reaction. We live with fear. But Scripture says, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Now listen, don't leave off, the, off this end part. To those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. If you have died with Christ, there isn't anything in this world that can happen to you that will not work out for good. Nothing. What are you scared of? What am I scared of? So, Jesus knew that God was in control. He knew Herod wasn't in control. He knew Jerusalem wasn't in control. He knew God was in control. Well, what did he do to kind of defuse the situation? First of all, he broke the situation down into factors. Sometimes when we look at the entire situation, we, we look at everything together and we make it bigger than it is. And you've got to break it down into people and into timing. When you're facing a real pressure situation, and listen, the first inclination is to get rid of the pressure. God didn't send you here to get rid of all the pressure in your life. You know what? We don't do well without pressure. We need pressure. You realize Jesus didn't try to get rid of the pressure. He didn't try to escape the pressure. We need pressure in our lives or, or we tend to get fat and lazy and decadent. We need some pressure. I heard uh, Paul Harvey tell him, <laughs> tell him a story on his radio program this week. I just happened to be riding in a car at that time and he told uh, about a cartoon he saw and uh, this couple was coming out of the church. They had just gotten married, you know, and they were going toward the limousine to carry them off into their, onto, onto their honeymoon. And uh, the woman was jumping up into the air and clicking her heels and shouting, Yippee! No more Weight Watchers! <laughs> the pressure was off, see? 
And the guy, guy's eyes were like this. The pressure was off. Well, that's, that's what happens to us. When all pressure is taken off of us, we tend not to perform our best. So the idea is not to remove pressure. But the idea is to see the situation accurately and to what we used to call in psychology, decathect our feelings towards those who would threaten us. To take the potency, the emotional potency away from those images. First of all, you can do it by humor. You can kid about it. In, the, in World War II, there was probably more imitations, silly imitations done of Adolf Hitler in the ranks of those who were sent to Germany to fight than in America. Because, and these soldiers would, you know, put on a mustache and they'd march around, they'd run into things and so on and so forth, and the whole battalion would fall down laughing. What were they doing? They were decathecting. They were taking away from Hitler his intimidation so that they could fight more effectively. For those of you who are being threatened, it is perfectly legitimate to kid about those who would threaten you. To, to have, I, I worked with a, with a pastor one time on, on staff who could um, defuse any emotional situation with humor and appropriate humor. I mean, he wasn't just trying to get out of it. He just put it in perspective. Just put it in perspective. And when Jesus looked at these guys and said, you go tell that old fox. As soon as he said that, he was smiling. This was a joke. You go tell that old fox. You know, I'm going to continue with life as usual. Right away, his power was taken away power was taken away. Secondly, you can begin to take a look at those lives that have threatened you and you can pity them. When I was a kid in grade school, there was a guy who had just gotten out of reform school, uh, Mansfield Penitentiary, and I mean the guy came, he was in, he, they put him back in sixth grade. I will never know why. He was old enough to vote. He was, I mean, but they put him back and he came to think, and his cigarettes were rolled up in his sleeve, you know. <laughs> he just came in the, you know, the, the Elvis look, the slick back, greased hair. I guess Elvis, maybe Elvis wasn't even popular yet. Well, yeah, he was, 50s. But anyhow, you know how guys come into school when you're new and you, you look for somebody to establish yourself with, somebody to pick on so you can be the head of the roost? He looked at me. His name was Roger Hicks. And I went, oh, no. And every day, Roger would come beat me up. I mean, it's just a ritual. Just come beat me up. Make me eat dead leaves, stuff like that. You know, I tried to resist him for a while, but the guy was big. I spent most of my life with big people. I'm so glad to see some short people in this congregation. But anyhow, he was a big, big person. And I went back, and I told my mom about it, you know. And, of course, mom didn't rescue me. I, she just had never rescued me. I went back and told my mom about it. And she said, you know, Joey, I feel so sorry for Roger Hicks. And I thought, I didn't tell her this story right. She hasn't got, I'm the one that's getting beat up. She thinks I'm beating up Roger Hicks. And I said, Mom, I don't think I'm hearing you right. No, she said, you are hearing me right. She knew a little bit about his family. And it was a wreck of a family. She said, honey, he does not have a chance in life. Let me tell you what, he's gonna, what his life's going to be like if it is not somehow interrupted by somebody that's healthy. And she gave me the whole scenario. She said, he's going to drop out of school in, in one year, which he did. He's going to marry some girl with low self-esteem, which he did. 
he's going to have a whole bunch of kids he can't support, and then he's going to run off, which he did. Said he hadn't got a chance. You know, from then on, when Roger Hicks beat me up, I didn't quite feel so bad. It wasn't a personal thing, you know? It was just something that he had to do to try to establish himself in the world, and he never could. Never could. Even if people are successful in beating you up, look at them and say, realistically, what kind of life is that? How long can you live beating people up for your self-esteem? What rewards are there in personal intimidation? How will it go on down the line? Someday you begin to reap what you've sown. You begin to reap the emptiness. You begin to reap the dead ends of life. And that's what happened. When Jesus looked at Jerusalem, he said, they can kill me. You stoned the prophets before. I know you're going to stone this one. But how desolate is that life? How empty, how meaningless is that life? So when you look and, at, at the, in the faces of someone who is out to get you or who is going to intimidate you or somehow hurt you, please recognize that that lifestyle has a judgment of its own. That you reap what you sow, and when you are busy destroying people's lives, your life will be destroyed eventually. So it's important to fragment that. It's important to take a look at the people. It's also important to take a look at the timing. Now this is real important. There is a wonderful article in a basic, the basic discipleship course we have, I think has it in the, uh, in the first book. An article called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And the article is about how we get intimidated by things that seem so urgent for us to take care of, and we then ignore the very important things of our lives. We have this big business thing over here that's just horrible, and it's going to kill us, and it's going to take away our living, and it's gonna, we're going to be broke, and we're going to have a bad reputation, and all this kind of stuff, so we spend all of our time on this business thing, and we don't pay any attention to the important things that God's given us the wives and the, and the kids and the friends and the opportunity to worship Him and the opportunity to read the Word of God because we are so focused. We just have to take care of this thing right now. It's got to be resolved, quote, once and for all, unquote. Anytime you hear the words in your mind, I'm going to take care of this once and for all, forget it. Watch out. You're barking up the wrong tree. Jesus didn't take care of things once and for all. He had a temptation at the beginning of his ministry to take care of things once and for all when Satan came to him and said, turn these stones into bread. Jump off this tower. You can take care of who you are, the reputation you want once and for all, the, the, uh, Satan said to him. And Jesus said, not going to do it. Not going to do it. It continued to be a temptation in his life when he faced his persecutors in Jerusalem. The disciples started to draw the swords. He said, Put them away. Don't you think if I wanted to? Now, I think this is in Matthew uh, 2410. No, 2453, I think it is. 
Anyhow, it says, don't you think if I wanted to, that I could just ask the Father and he would send down an entire legion of angels and we'd get out of this thing? Now, why did he say that? Because he was thinking about doing it. That's why. He didn't create that thought on the spot. It was a real temptation for him to take care of this situation once for all. See? But anytime you start to think of that, you are beginning to get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent. Instead of going day by day in the very important process of life and just taking care of what God told you to take care of. It is not your responsibility to solve the problems of the world all at once. As a matter of fact, it's not even your responsibility to solve the problems of the world. It's just your responsibility to take care of what God's given you, period. You know, in the second judgment, now if, you're in, if you are in Christ, if you've accepted me as, as your Savior, you bypass the first judgment. That's heaven and hell. You bypass, but the second judgment is the judgment of works, the judgment seat of Christ. There's ten things that we'll be judged for, approximately. I'll give you a whole message on that sometime. But several of them are you will be judged as to how you spent your time. You'll be judged as to what you've done with the talents that God's given you. You'll be judged as to how you've been taken care, how you've taken care of the people that he's put under your authority or in your realm of influence. You'll be judged for all that. You know how many times you'll be judged for the world problems you've solved? None. It's not there. There's no place in Scripture where that's our responsibility. How many times you've pulled a miracle out of the air and done something real big? It's not there. I mean, it's wonderful if you can do it. It's wonderful if God does it through you. But the things that we will be judged for are the everyday things. The places where we can bloom where we've been planted, as the old saying goes. The everyday things, the normal things. I was with a group the other night. As a matter of fact, this happened with me twice this week. And we just sat around and shared answers to prayer that God had done in our lives that week. And it is so cool. I, I talked about an answer to prayer that we had for one of our sons. And it was just, it was remarkable. I mean, it was so evident that God had done this. And, and one shared about an answer to prayer for uh, a brother that she had needing a vacation, not knowing how in the world they were going to do it. And they prayed about it and all these weird things happened and it worked out. And another person shared about an answer of prayer that they had had about a vehicle who needed to make it up a hill and it wasn't quite making it. And if it didn't make it up there, it was going to roll backwards. And, you know, just everyday stuff, you know, no legs growing six inches, nobody blind that was now seized, now seized. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I thought how neat it is just to sit around with a group of brothers and sisters and just say, this is what the Lord has done for me in the recent past, day by day with the problems I have every day. This is how God is active in my life. It is so tempting to us to want to spectacularize and have something big to solve. I was talking with a brother the other day, and he said, you know what it took me a long time to learn? I've been looking for wisdom all of my life, and I've been looking for great counsel and it took me the longest time to learn that the most wonderful counselor God 
ever gave me was my wife. Okay, women, you can go like this now. He said, she told me for years things about myself. And I wouldn't believe them until I sought counsel from other people and added it up and she was right all along. She, he said, I thought she was just trying to be arrogant. And then he said, even if she was trying to be arrogant, I should have listened to her because it was the truth. Well, God works like that, doesn't he? I mean, we can seek answers from great scriptural teachers. We could turn on Stanley and Swindoll and MacArthur and all of the biggies, you know, watch them on TV. But you want to know what God needs to tell you in your everyday life? Ask somebody who knows you. Ask somebody who walks with you. Ask somebody who has to live with you. And you'll get the truth. Day by day. That's what Jesus was saying. And he was saying, no matter how much you're intimidated, your job is to live out the life I've given you. To run the race that is set before you, Hebrews 12.1. And don't get sucked into a fantasy that someday I'll show them, someday I'll be powerful enough that I can handle this because it's just a fantasy. And it's not for you anyhow. Let me show you the most wonderful scripture. Becky showed me this the other day. And as many times as I've been through scriptures, I've never noticed this scripture. In Judges chapter 9, I love this. It talks about the temptation to become king, you know, to be big enough to handle it all. Starting with verse 7b, he tells them a parable. Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Once the trees went forth to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? In other words, shall I relinquish the fruitfulness that I have every day in order for a job that really doesn't produce anything, it just gives me greater stature. Well, they knew it was going to work with him, so in verse 10 it says, And then the trees went to the fig tree. Will you come reign over us? But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave the sweetness and my good fruit to wave over the trees? And then the tree said to the vine, You come reign over us. But the vine said to, him, to them, Shall I leave my new wine which cheers God and men, and go to wave over the trees? And finally, all the trees said to the bramble, <laughs> the thorn bush, well, you come and reign over us. When you're intimidated, when you think people are out to destroy or to harm you, the temptation will be to cease your persistence in the daily things of life, in the daily ways that you are productive and want to be somebody, quote, big, unquote, so that you have the power to take care of it. God works just the opposite. He says, now I want you to remain who you are and watch what I do with this situation. I want you to give it to me. But I've given you children to take care of. I, you know, it, it wipes me out that a society says to a woman, 
What you are doing is not important unless you're paid for it. Ask yourself, unless I have a call of God on my life, should I leave the fruitfulness of rearing the most important thing in the world, the taking care of the most important thing in the world that's a person, a small person, in order to go out and get a degree and have a job and earn money so I can be big in the world's eyes? Should I really do that just to wave over the trees? Some of us are so wanting to be elected to something or to be the grand poopah or something. You know, they wear the, you know, the little hats and the tassels so that they can be the most grand whatever of anything. I mean, it's pitiful. When you haven't spoken to your wife in the last five nights when you came home from work, you see, God says, take care of what I've given you and leave the grand poopah to me. Stay. Unless you're having the call of God in your life, stay true to your present circumstance, working out every day what God would have you do. Be fruitful. Don't be intimidated by the messages of, messages of society or the messages of your enemies because the best thing you can do is just be who you are. President Bush was right in his response to, Be uh, to Beijing. We don't go over there and turn those people into Democrats or Republicans, into a, into a representative republic. We just be one and be the best one we can be. And eventually all of the world, if the Lord tarries, will say, I want that. I want that. And it will not be denied. Would you pray with me? Lord, forgive our impatience and our low self-esteem and our ego problems that make us want to be more powerful than those who threaten us and make us want to turn to them instead of the jobs that you've given us to do. Give us the Spirit of Christ that no matter how difficult or how ordinary or how boring or how everyday our lives are, that we would do what you have given us so far to do and to not pay attention to the critics or to the horrible things that could happen, to not try to correct the awful things that have happened, but to love who you've given us to love and to help who you've given us to help. We pray in the nature and the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, if there are those in here this morning who have not that nature but want it, help them right now to admit that they are sinners and that they can't have that nature without you living in them. And let them this morning invite Jesus Christ into their lives, being satisfied that His death upon the cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of their sins, and His life dwelling in them is sufficient for their living out your wishes and your plans. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.